Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Clinician's Brief Partner Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. I'm a practicing general practitioner and uh, one of the veterinary editors over at Clinician's Brief. And I'm very excited to be here today with Dr. Robin Downing. Dr. Downing, can you give us a little bit of information about yourself? Certainly. And thank you, Dr. Katie, for Uh, inviting me to participate in this podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So I too am a primary care provider in Northern Colorado. I'm north of Denver about an hour, but I'm also a specialist. I'm board certified by the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation. And um, I'm a pain expert as well. And I have two human pain management credentials, as well as having been a founder of the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management uh, an organization that I had the privilege of serving as the second president. Uh, I also helped to create the only pain management credential for primary care providers and veterinary technicians in veterinary medicine called the Certified Veterinary Pain Practitioner. And most recently, I had the privilege of being named the 2020 Leo K. Bustad Companion Animal Veterinarian of the Year by the AVMA, and that is actually something of which I am I'm particularly proud because it it really facilitates what will be my final career, as it were. I am in the middle of a doctorate in clinical bioethics at Loyola University of Chicago. Clinical bioethics being the discipline within which we ask the question, just because we can do something medically doesn't mean we should. My training obviously is in the human bioethical arena because we don't have such a thing in veterinary medicine, but it gives me great pleasure to know that I am uh, I'm beginning the process of translating those practices and principles of clinical bioethics for application in clinical veterinary medicine as our profession continues to advance the level of care that we're able to provide. That is absolutely amazing. I feel like that's so much needed in the profession right now is to have so much crossover between human and veterinary care because we're all headed in that same direction where we can do so much for pets now and all the same questions that come up with human medicine come up and we don't have answers for them, you know? So I think that's fantastic. Um, So thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for this conversation. And this is actually part of a five-part series, which is brought to you by Care Credit and Pets Best. And we're going to be talking in this series about how we as veterinary professionals can be more proactive about our patient care, uh, including, you know, helping clients anticipate their pet's needs a little bit better um, and how decisions that we make today could affect that care later. And also, of course, encouraging and helping clients plan for the cost of care and how to pay for it. And of course, ethics, I think, comes into this every day with every interaction that we do in this arena with clients. So today we're going to be talking about something that I think is only going to become more and more important in the world that we're living in today. It's just getting increasingly complicated, it feels like, which is a more proactive versus reactive approach to veterinary care. And a lot of people, I feel like, hear the word proactive and they think, well, that's what we do in general practice. You know, we vaccinate, we give heartworm prevention, we promote spaying and neutering. And that is true. You know, preventive care is proactive care. But what specifically do you think of, Dr. Robin, when we are talking about proactive versus reactive veterinary care? 
Well, Dr. Katie, I really think that it's an important distinction that we should make between preventive care and proactive care, because proactive care literally does go beyond preventive care. Proactive care is really, it's about thinking ahead to inevitabilities. For instance, old age is not a disease. But aging brings with it things that happen to the body, changes that come with aging. And veterinary healthcare teams really must begin this conversation about the spectrum of lifetime care, the arc of lifetime care at the very first puppy and kitten visit, and then continue to have that conversation at all future visits. It's so important for us in veterinary medicine to remind ourselves periodically that we are the only medical profession on the planet that cares for its patients from the very beginning of life to the very end of life, from womb to tomb, from cradle to grave. And this puts us in a really unique place of responsibility. This idea of being proactive versus only doing preventive care, allowing us not to have to be in the reactive place is a terrific way for veterinarians to really leverage their technicians, veterinary nurses, veterinary assistants to create this circle of care in which the patient resides right there in the center of that circle of care as we create collaboration with our clients. I love that idea. That is a mental picture too. It's like a great image of a circle of care. You know, everybody, this big team just collaborating to keep pets healthy. And I think, you know, preventive care is wonderful, but we all know that in spite of all of our best efforts with preventive care, we're all going to get sick at some point. We're all going to get older. And the same is true for the pets. So ignoring that possibility at the beginning and stressing only preventive care, obviously, just doesn't make sense. It seems like the more often we bring that up at these earlier visits, the less foreign and surprising it's going to be for our clients when their pets do get sick at some point. I think you know that I was a participant in a recent roundtable discussion in which we really talked about how can we as veterinary professionals really leverage this idea of being proactive in the sense and in the context of creating this image for our clients that we're in it for the long haul and we're in it with them so that we as professionals can be the source for the information that they need and that their pets deserve to help those pets live as long and as healthy as they can. We need to remind ourselves that Times have really changed in terms of how long our patients can be expected to live. I've been in practice 34 years, and 34 years ago when I graduated from veterinary school, it was pretty typical for a, the average big dog, like a Labrador retriever, to live nine, maybe 10 years, and we thought we were really accomplishing something if we got them into the double digits or into their teens. And in my current practice, the last really elderly lab that I lost in my practice was 16 years old. Wow. This is just astounding to have witnessed this during the course of my career. And I think that that is really a point that we as professionals just need to focus on is that this arc of our patients' lives is a much longer arc than we ever dreamed possible. Just one month ago, I lost one of my personal cats, and Muffin was 24 years old. She wow. Was a, she was a Siamese. 
and she lived to be 24 years old. That just defies the imagination. That's but amazing. that is our current reality in dealing with our patients. Yeah, I, I love something that you said um, in that discussion that you just mentioned, um, where you said that pet owners are often thinking in snapshots. You know, this is what my pet needs today. This is what's going on. This is this is what I've planned for today versus thinking about how decisions that we make together about the care of their pet today will affect that pet's health down the road. Why, why do you feel like it's hard, even though pets are living longer and longer and we know that, why do you think it's still hard for people to think in terms of the long game? Oh my gosh, our culture has changed so much. We are an instant gratification culture. Oh yeah. You think about, you think about Amazon Prime, you think about meal prep companies. Who would ever have dreamed, somebody had told me 10 years ago, that people would pay money to have a box show up on their, on their uh, porch that had their meal prepped for the next week. I would be like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> how, how hard is it to put a, like, a Stouffer's lasagna in the microwave? But that's another example. We have the Stouffer's lasagna in the microwave. We have Grubhub. We have DoorDash. This gives us even faster fast food. So this is not unique to veterinary medicine that our clients think in snapshots. It, there's been an explosion in human medicine of urgent care facilities. Who was, I, I never dreamed anyone would go to an urgent care facility. Don't you go to your family doctor? And yet that's part of our current culture. So our job as veterinary professionals it's our job to be the adult in the room. It's our job to be the, the adult in the equation to help our clients take a breath, slow down. Let's put the focus on the pet. Let's keep the focus on the pet. And let's make a plan together that we can work together. And that's one of the reasons why this concept of proactivity becomes so critically important. Yeah, I love that. The the slowing down, the focusing on the pet, because that's why we're all here, right? Is for that pet. But um I I do think it's even harder than ever right now to get people to slow down and take that breath and think ahead just a little bit because, you know, this is also an unprecedented time. I mean, it's insane how different the world is today even than it was six months ago. And um, Matt Saloy, who's a chief economist at the AVMA, has said something um, that really struck me, which is um, that the pandemic has affected every single corner of our economy. And the takeaway is that veterinarians should be having proactive conversations with pet owners about the cost of care, and we need to over-communicate the financial options. And the reason that that hit me was because I feel like I am on the brink communicating with clients already as it is. Like we're doing curbside care. If we have clients in the building, it's, you know, we're talking through masks. No one's actually seen a mouth move in months. And it's just, it's even harder than ever to take that time and communicate effectively. Just feels like it takes more effort, but it is so important. It's even more important now. Why do you think it's so important now more than ever, even when it could be a little bit more difficult now? to encourage clients to think proactively? Well, I think we really have to circle back to why do veterinarians exist? And we exist to facilitate, lengthen, and strengthen the precious human-animal bond. That's our job. Pets are now really members of the family. 
this is how our clients describe them. I can't tell you how many of my clients describe themselves as pet parents. And now in the face of the pandemic with so many people working remotely from home, having to homeschool their kids, they're actually spending more time with pets. And interestingly enough, there's been an uptick in adoptions. I am in communication with several rescue agencies in my area, and they tell me that their census is down. So with that, with increased adoptions and people spending more time with their animals, they're actually noticing things that they didn't notice before, and they want what's best for their pets. So we can help them prevent, we can help them plan. They are experiencing uncertainty on so many fronts that by helping our clients plan for inevitable medical issues, we are serving a very important role for them. Now, as far as planning for the inevitability of financial expenditure, it's important for us as veterinarians to help them know what their options are, to help educate them about pet insurance and how it can help defray or defer costs, educating them about third-party payment like care credit that allows them to pay over time with no interest charged. We have to be transparent about the fact that veterinary medicine does cost money. It is an out-of-pocket expenditure, but we can help them plan by helping them understand what would it cost to go to an ER? What would an ER visit cost? Well, I think it's part of my obligation to my patients and my clients to have an idea what my ER that I use is going to cost my client if they have to go in the middle of the night because their animal has a life-threatening condition. Likewise, it's our responsibility and obligation to educate them about things that we will provide. For instance, helping them understand the cost of a periodontal therapy to prevent bad pathology in the mouth versus a uh, dental intervention once we have terrible periodontal disease, and then helping them understand how they can prevent bad things from happening. Yeah, and there's such an emotional aspect to that too, right? I mean, it's not just the money, it's that clients suddenly are shocked and upset when their pet needs something and they feel like they can't provide it, whether it's because of something else logistically that's going on with them or financially. Um, but just taking that minute at each visit to sort of hop into the future just a little bit and help them anticipate what might happen, what's almost certainly going to happen, could just it could go such a long way. So I totally agree with that. Um, that human animal bond, like we we see them as family members, but that doesn't always come with a conscious acceptance of how much it costs to take care of a family member. So we can do more, but it's always going to cost more. Well, and this is why I really think that part of the way we have to think about this is that we're partnering with our clients to help them avoid disasters. Mm -hmm. So how do we help them avoid disasters? Well, we have some core things that we know we need to do. For instance, regular examinations and early diagnostics with early interventions when we find something that is tiny, that is wrong or we're on a path that could create a problem with simple things like vaccinations and parasite prevention and management. When should we remove the testicles and the ovaries, when should we do that surgery? And what about nutrition? 
And I think nutrition is an easy thing for us to overlook, and yet it's one of the easiest things for us to focus on and leverage our team members to focus on because it's very easy for our clients to be seduced by sexy marketing. And why would that be a problem? Well, really two things come to mind. One is how many emails in my inbox every week I get from the FDA alerting me about some recall or other out there in the pet food world. But another problem that's even more catastrophic is this recently emerged issue of dilated cardiomyopathy in dogs who have been fed boutique grain-free diets. This is totally a fad and it's totally boutique diets that are not created with the help of a boarded nutritionist. And dilated cardiomyopathy, as you know, Dr. Katie, is a catastrophic condition and it's happening in very young dogs and it creates the opportunity for a permanent disability in those dogs. And those dogs may die anyway, in spite of what an owner might spend, which can be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars in an attempt to reverse something that was completely preventable in the first place, if we would just educate and focus them, the client, on why are we here and why should we be the source of your medical information? It's because we want to work together with you, my client, to help your animal get the best care that we can provide based on what is available to us, both financially and with the resources that you have in your family. Yeah, that's a great example because I I think we so easily will just like skip over those things where, you know, we're running late and we've already been in the room for 20 minutes talking about, you know, dental cleaning or something and we get kind of stuck and then we think, okay, they haven't asked me about nutrition. I'm just going to skip that today. But skipping that one chance that you had to talk to that one owner about that diet that you didn't know they were feeding and you've missed it, you know, and even though you might do that 20 times a day, that pet owner and that pet only have that one chance for you to to advocate for that partnership and working together to find a diet that works better for that pet and isn't going to cause problems. So that's a really good reminder because I know that happens to me where I'm just like, oh, I'll bring up flea intake prevention another time. And not proud of that, but we all have those moments and that can cause so many problems in the long term just for that one pet. So, you know, and, and communicating that we want to help them anticipate the cost of these things that we're recommending and that it's not a matter of, I'm going to judge you if you can't pay for it. It's a, I want you to be aware of what this could do for your pet and give you some options right off the bat for how we can make this happen. I couldn't agree more. And one of the things that I think we have to remind ourselves also is that all of us are overloaded, particularly in the face of what we're dealing with now with the pandemic. There's so much information. It's like being in a waterfall and trying to take a drink. It's just so overwhelming. And our role as educators is even more important now because we have to be able to pierce through that waterfall of information. Together, Care Credit and Pets Best are empowering a lifetime of care for more pets by helping clients be financially prepared. Our simple, flexible, budget-friendly choices work together to help them manage the cost of care. Routine to unexpected, 
first year to senior care. Providing financial care for pet parents supports lifelong care for patients. Learn more at carecredit.com slash provider center slash veterinary. Yes, I absolutely think we are just so overwhelmed with information and with options too. I mean, we are inundated with info all day from all channels. And I want to go back, if you wouldn't mind, um, Dr. Robin, to something that you said um, when you were introducing yourself to us and you were talking about how your work in bioethics, you know, that addresses the question of just because we can do something, does that mean we always should? And that was a topic that I wanted to visit, the question of appropriate care versus optimal care. There's another episode of the series, we're going to be talking specifically about finances, and we are going to go back to that question, you know, how to help clients take a proactive approach where money's concerned, you know, encouraging them to build their own safety net. But no matter how much we encourage clients to plan financially, and no matter how many options we talk about with them, it's just a fact of life in medicine that not all of our clients are going to want or be able to afford that gold standard. So would you mind visiting that topic? What what do you see as the difference between appropriate care and optimal care? So again, I think that there is a distinction to be made. I think it's important for us to remember that we are morally obligated to advocate on behalf of beings who cannot advocate for themselves. Those are our patients. And that does mean articulating to the client what is medically best for a pet in a specific circumstance. And study after study that's been done demonstrates to us that clients want to know what is best for their animal, even if they know going in that they're not going to be able to afford to do everything that we recommend. They want to know, and they want the veterinary healthcare team to partner with them to help them achieve what is best for their animal. So it's our obligation then to do our best to help our client understand what are the medical priorities. So one approach to this is articulating what is medically best for a pet in a particular circumstance, and then asking that open-ended question, such as, how can we work together to make things happen? Because what that really does is, is communicate collaboration, and it opens the door for a dialogue about what are our collective goals of care? What's the client's goal of care? What's the client's priority? What's the client's financial reality and limitation? It is not for us to judge the nature of their relationship with their pets. That, you know, outside of reportable abuse, this is their relationship. But it is for us to educate and inform them about what is best and then to assist them in setting appropriate medical priorities. What can we do today? What can we postpone? What will we defer? Uh, there's a phrase that comes up in some of these discussions that we, the veterinary healthcare provider, we can't care more than our clients do. Well, that's, that's just simply not a relevant statement. That is just not relevant. Because if we have a client in the exam room, they have sought us out. They are there because they care, 
And we have a bioethical obligation to the pet to meet the client where they live in their reality. Yeah, I I hate that phrase. <laughs> you can't care more than they do. I totally agree with you about that because I that just breaks my heart to think about all the clients that I've seen who who legitimately have reasons for declining my recommendations or for going a different direction and it's never because they don't care, you know, and they they can care differently, but they don't usually care less. And um, I think seeing those decisions in a black and white sense of like, this is the right thing to do and this is the wrong thing to do just sets up that pet for not getting what they need. And, you know, I think it's very tempting for us to judge sometimes because we think we know the right answer all the time. That's, you know, that's why we went into medicine, right? Because there's a, there's an answer for things. We like to fix things. Um, if we know we can quote unquote fix something and we feel like we're not being able, being allowed to do our jobs, then it becomes very tempting to judge. But I love that idea that you said about thinking about it as a collaboration rather than a judgment. Um, how can we work together to make this outcome the best that it can be for your situation, for your outlook and your relationship? So I, I think that's fantastic. I think another way to think about this or frame this is rather than thinking about adequate versus optimal, which kind of sets up a dichotomy of good care versus subpar care, mm -hmm. is rather to think about it as incremental care. In other words, incremental care focuses on what is essential and how can we make that essential care a value proposition for the client. So allowing them to understand that, for instance, most of our clients, and I would, I would guess some of our colleagues, don't realize that about 65% of the infectious diseases that happen in humans actually are zoonotic. I mean, we all know about like the scourge of rabies, but we don't always think about leptospirosis. Uh, for instance, has a zoonotic disease, right? And yet, and yet, in my state, there was a, a woman uh, just two summers ago who died from leptospirosis that she very likely encountered in the same environment that her, her dog lived. We have diseases like Bartonella. We have larval migrants of parasites. These are things that our clients do need to know about, and that we can help them with a value-added approach to understand that that's essential care and that that's the foundation upon which we then can build increment by increment to a broader palette of more comprehensive care, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, we're, we're taking care of the family in that sense, um, not just a dog or a cat um, or you know, a turtle. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to take care of turtles, but <laughs> kudos exactly. to you do. <laughs> exactly. So one thing that is emerging, and this is part of the One Health initiative, One Health recognizing the reciprocal relationship between human medicine and veterinary medicine, is a program uh, that goes by the name of Align Care. And this is something that I would like listeners to be aware of, because this is a brainchild of and has been spearheaded by a friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Michael Blackwell. Many of us will remember that Dr. Michael Blackwell is a former assistant surgeon general of the United States. 
and he served for many years as the Dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And because he witnessed this disparity in veterinary care across our culture, where economic euthanasia was happening because prevention wasn't happening, he decided not to just wring his hands about it, but to actually do something about it. And Align Care's motto is supporting families through access to veterinary care. We understand that the human-animal bond is reciprocal, so the family benefits as well as the pet benefiting from that human-animal bond. So why should a family be denied having pets just because they are experiencing financial hardship? Why should that family be denied the opportunity to take care of the pet they love because they're experiencing financial hardship. So this concept of providing incremental and adequate focused care, this incremental care piece by piece is patient-centered, it's empirical medicine in the context of limited financial resources so that we avoid non-critical procedures but provide clinical care versus not helping the patient at all. This is a program that um, has created an actual incremental care guideline that is algorithmic. You know, Dr. Katie, that we rely on algorithms all the time. Mm -hmm. If this, you know, is the patient X? If yes, we go down this path. If no, we go down this path. Yep. And, and this incremental care guideline is algorithmic in nature, and it is an open document that veterinarians can access if they want to really take this idea seriously of helping their clients create an opportunity to do incremental care versus not doing anything at all. This formal collaboration of Align Care is something that is being piloted in several key cities, including Knoxville, Tennessee, and Phoenix, Arizona. But the idea in mind is to create a nationwide program, particularly in urban centers where there is um, an issue with a large population of folks who are experiencing either poverty or just financial hardship, where there's collaboration with social workers, as well as veterinary providers, as well as allowing a veterinarian to have the care that they provide subsidized by a third party. That is absolutely amazing. Um, did you say that these algorithms are available for veterinarians to access? Absolutely. If you go to your friend, Mr. Google, and you just Google Align Care, A-L-I-G-N-C-A-R-E, Align Care got me to that document. I had to scroll through a couple of websites, but it's available as a PDF. It's clearly marked as a draft document, so it is a work in progress, but it is really a very, I think, a very innovative and very exciting way for us to begin to think about, expand our thinking about how we might be able to help a family who is experiencing hardship not be in a situation that they have to make an economic euthanasia decision. And those those decisions affect the veterinary team deeply as well, of course, um, which brings us to our keep it brief section, where I would really like to ask you about how you feel like this proactive approach relates to the topic of veterinary team wellness. Do you feel like they're connected? Oh, absolutely. First of all, we know that if we create an environment of collaboration, that that increases job satisfaction. 
certainly for me as the veterinarian, but by leveraging my team, it allows my team to know that they make a difference and that improves their job satisfaction and gives them the knowledge that they're making a positive difference in someone else's life. And we know that we can experience both compassion fatigue and an ethics fatigue if we are in a situation where we are faced with patients who aren't getting the care that they need and deserve for reasons outside of our control. This kind of collaboration really does, I think, not just relate to veterinary team wellness, but it really enhances veterinary team wellness. And it is, I think, critical for us as veterinarians, as leaders in our practices, to really watch the backs of the people who work with us and for us, to allow them to know how important they are by giving them tangible things that they can do to make a difference. That is so wonderful. We all know that dread, right? Where the t- our technician comes out of the exam room and that we're about to go in, they've taken a history or whatever, and they say, you know, this is going on and this and this and this, you know, this is a hot mess and the owner has no money. And we all just kind of look at each other. And I feel like there's a critical moment in those cases where we know that there's a lot that needs to be addressed and we are all kind of dreading going in there because we know we're not going to be able to do everything we want to do and changing that mindset to, okay, how can we fit these puzzle pieces together to get this pet the care it needs? I feel like that just lifts everybody up. It makes everybody feel a little bit more empowered and not so defeated, no matter what the situation is when you go into that room. So I I just think that's fantastic. If I may, I'd like to give you a very tangible example of that. Yeah, please. Um, So I have a a recent client who came to us because his dog was experiencing some uh, osteoarthritis pain. And he is someone who um, is not very far from homeless, very, very limited resources. And he was very transparent about his situation when we met him as a client. And I encourage that transparency by how we position ourselves in the exam room. Uh, We are a fear-free certified practice. Uh, I was a, you may be aware that I was part of uh, Dr. Marty Becker's initiative to create this fear-free movement in veterinary medicine. I serve on their advisory board as a pain expert and also as a bioethicist. And so we were the first veterinary practice in the state of Colorado to be a fear-free practice. Well, we take fear-free not just in the context of how the patient is experiencing us, but also how the client experiences us. And in this case, I was able to help this client be comfortable enough to speak candidly with me about his limited resources. Now, as a pain expert, of course, uh, I've got just not just my medical obligation to help my patient, but a bioethical obligation as well. And so we had to collaborate in a way that allowed us to provide that dog with some relief that he needed to be more comfortable. And we were able to do that. Well, on a subsequent visit to assess his pain, I actually detected a mass in his abdomen. And it was, it turned out, a fairly rapidly growing mass in his abdomen that was his spleen. He had a big tumor on his spleen. And here was a client who, you know, the gold standard, and I'm obligated to say to this man, the gold standard in this situation is an ultrasound of the abdomen with the potential 
for surgical intervention. However, that said, let's work together to decide what we need to do. I didn't make the decision for him that he would not proceed to a specialty practice, but I facilitated him making that decision for himself. And we shifted our focus back then to palliative care, to that care that is about comfort and not about cure. And he enjoyed another three and a half months with his dog before that dog had a, a basically a bleeding crisis. He knew because we had spoken about what would happen. He knew that at some point that tumor might rupture and bleed. He knew that that's not a painful way for a, a dog to uh, come very close to the end of its life and actually either die on its own or leading up to euthanasia. So he was comforted by the fact that even though he couldn't proceed with taking that tumor out, he knew that he was providing his dog with the essentials of what that dog needed to live until he died, to live comfortably until he died. And I had a beautiful, beautiful letter from that gentleman after his dog passed away that really it made me and my team weep a little to read because he was so grateful for the fact that we didn't judge him, that we didn't make him feel bad, that he couldn't do a surgery on his dog, and that we allowed him to have his dog with him for as long as possible and for his dog to be as comfortable as possible right up to the end. I love that story. And that could have that could have turned out so differently, right? With a different approach that day when you found that mass, you could have gotten a very different kind of letter. And a lot of us, I think, um, need that reminder sometimes that just because we can't do what we all learned in school as the gold standard doesn't mean that we can't do our absolute best for that pet at that moment. So in situations where maybe they're, we're looking at something a little bit less dire, so a patient is in for a wellness appointment um, or a client calls you, you know, for allergies or something like that and you find another issue, what, what's your favorite way to introduce the idea of proactive care to your clients? Probably the, my favorite way to talk about proactive care with my clients is well my very favorite way is to start right at the beginning so when i see an eight-week-old puppy or a 12-week-old kitten i already i begin that conversation about okay where you're going to be with this kiddo for a really long time and so we're going to set some things in motion when he's young that will help him be happy and healthy from this point forward if i don't have the luxury of that when i see a patient and they come to me and they do have a laundry list of issues. What I do is to first identify what those issues are. And I, I speak with my client while I'm doing my physical examination. So when I find something I can say to them, we'll circle back to this in, at the end of my exam and we'll talk more about how we need to proceed. So that in while I'm finishing my exam, Part of my brain is scrambling through that list that I'm finding of issues and setting priorities. What's the most urgent thing for us to deal with? What do we have to do today? What's the next most important thing that we need to deal with? Can we deal with it today or can it wait a week or two? What 
I just go down that list. What are the things that we can defer? What are the things that we can delay? And what are the things we need to actually make a short-term plan to deal with either today or next week? And it's, it's a little bit of mental gymnastics on my part because I try to have that happen in my head while I'm actually looking at my patient and speaking with my client about what I find. But honestly, I find that that's one of the most rewarding parts of my job as the veterinarian in the room. I feel in some respects that I'm like a choreographer of a dance. And the dance that we do is that dance that takes us through fixing the problems that are fixable and allowing the pet to live with the problems we can't fix, that we can't resolve. And, and that's really where our problem solving skills as veterinarians get to be leveraged. And honestly, that's what keeps me coming to work after 34 years of practice. That's fantastic. I mean, that's why we're all here, right? Is because we want we want that pet and that owner to have the best possible life together, however long that may be. Um, and I, I feel like this idea of proactive care just gives us all kind of a sense of empowerment that we can do that and that it's an adventure we're on together with them. I just love that. Exactly. I think it's so important for us to remind ourselves that we don't have to fix every single problem in every single patient today. Yeah. And I think it's also important for us to remind ourselves that no matter how much we know and no matter how much information we vomit on the client in the exam room, we don't live with that animal. The client lives with that animal. So any anything that we recommend, anything that we do, anything that we plan has to be in alignment with how that family lives and how that client interacts with that pet each and every day. There's only so much we can do but part of what we can do is to put the tools in our clients' hands and empower our clients with what they need to do what they want to do, which is to help their animals live as long and as happily and as healthily as possible. Love that. And I think that's a great place for us to tie things up. Um, Dr. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I am so inspired talking to you. So um, I, I just couldn't have enjoyed this more. So thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Katie, thank you. It was really my pleasure and privilege to speak with you and to be uh, here in the inaugural uh, voyage of this podcast. Uh, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. And thanks again to our sponsors, Care Credit and Pets Best, and to all of you for joining us. Um, please be sure to check out the other episodes in this five-part series on providing a lifetime of care. See you next time. Thanks again to our sponsor and to today's guest for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review. We would appreciate if you leave us all of the stars. You can also listen to podcasts on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts. And you can drop us a line at podcasts at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief Partner Podcasts is a brief media production.